0: and American national insurance. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by Riazul Tequila, referred to as one of the best sipping tequilas on the market. It comes from the highlands of Jalisco, 7,200 feet above sea level. Riazul's agave has a higher sugar content, lending itself to a sweeter taste profile. If you are looking for a true sipping tequila with extraordinary depth after being aged two years in a cognac barrel you'll have to try Riazul Tequila. Cheers, everyone. To Dine for the Podcast is brought to you by Lavazza. Four generations of the Lavazza family have been working to perfect the art of blending coffee since 1895, with a devotion to making coffee moments special. Signature blend Lavazza Classico, with its intensely rich flavor and sweet aromatic notes, is a celebration of the Italian way of life in every cup, and is available... Anyway, you brew your coffee. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed, helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. Welcome to To Dine For The Podcast, where we meet the world's most creative and innovative minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Davis Smith.
1: It's so fulfilling and its I feel like this is my life calling almost like this is what I was made to do. And I I realized I needed all those experiences to be able to prepare me to go do what I'm doing now.
0: Davis is the founder and CEO of Cotopaxi, an outdoor gear and active lifestyle brand with a social mission. Cotopaxi was the first company to incorporate from inception as a benefit corporation and subsequently raise venture capital. When Davis founded Cotopaxi in 2014, his dream was to find a way to sustainably alleviate poverty at scale and to inspire others to join him in the movement. He witnessed firsthand the glaring hardship that stems from unequal access to opportunity while growing up in Latin America. Davis believes that a for-profit business could be a driving force for good in the world, and there is more to business than making a profit. I can't wait for you to enjoy my conversation with Davis Smith. Davis, how are you?
1: Great. How are you doing?
0: Good. Thank you so much for being on to dine for the podcast. It's great to see you this morning.
1: Yeah, I'm so happy to be on here. This is this is exciting.
0: Where are you coming in from?
1: From Salt Lake City.
0: Is that where you call home?
1: Yep. This is home for me.
0: Amazing. I've only been to Salt Lake City once and I was just blown away. It's such a gorgeous place to live.
1: It's amazing. Uh, This time of year is special, too, because you've got, you know, the the valley is like all green now, the trees are are blossoming, and then you've got these white snow-capped mountains like right behind us. So it's
0: beautiful. Yeah. It is. It's stunning. It's absolutely stunning. I, I shot an episode of To Dine For in the very beginning of December. I'd never been, and I just could not believe, just from the second we landed, you know, driving out of that airport, it was just so stunning.
1: I will say, um, so I moved here uh, nine years ago, nine and a half years ago, and I mean, I think the first year or two, every time I drove up to my house, there's these towering mountains right behind, and it's just like, I think I was like jaw-dropping every time, <laughs> and now it starts to feel normal, but it's, yes. it really is beautiful. Yeah. Yes.
0: Okay, so I'm going to ask you what I how I begin all these podcasts, which is, where is your favorite restaurant and now that i know that salt lake city is home to you you don't have to choose a place in salt lake city but if you could take me to one restaurant where would you take me
1: i mean that's that's such a tough choice because there's obviously different like restaurants for different occasions there's like we have a we have a small cabin up one of the canyons here and nearby is a is a restaurant that i really like going to it's nothing special but it's more like almost like a diner but it's been around for forever. And I actually have ancestors that moved to Salt Lake City in the 1800s. And they
0: do you really?
1: Yeah. And so they helped settle Salt Lake City. And they had a a cabin or a first a cabin, then later a hotel up one of the canyons called uh, their last name was Brighton. And there's a ski resort called Brighton named after them, because they had um, this land and they had a hotel up there. And, you know, people would come up from Salt Lake City up in their horses and carriages to go spend a weekend or a week up in up in the mountains. And so this restaurant was has been, really been there since uh I don't know how long, but a long long time. And so that one's a special one. What's it called? That one's called the Silver Fork Restaurant.
0: So the Silver Fork in Brighton, Utah. And what would you get there and why why do you love it so much?
1: I mean it's just like total diner food. It's you know, but at the same time it's actually pretty good, but I'm actually not a huge meatloaf fan, but they have they have this meatloaf called Elmo's meatloaf and it's like <laughs> It's pretty good, actually.
0: (laughs) If you're gonna go meatloaf, it's where you want to have your meatloaf.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Well,
0: it's funny when I would. I I, I promise I never scroll during an interview. But when you were talking and thinking of of the silver fork, I was looking up Five Seeds. Have you been to Five Seeds?
1: Up in Park City. Yes. Yeah.
0: I think that place is phenomenal.
1: It's phenomenal.
0: The Five Seeds is is one of those places where the food is not only extraordinarily healthy and farm to table and organic and all those things, but it's also just really beautifully prepared. And, uh, yeah. you know, it, it's unassuming. And I just thought that place, I, during my trip, I ended up going back twice because I loved it so much.
1: That's awesome, yeah. yeah. This diner, uh, Silver Fork uh, restaurant, it's in, a, in a, an old log cabin. So it, like mm. the setting, it just feels like you're up in the mountains. It's a Well,
0: road. and it's a it's a homage and a toast to your family, right? It's exactly, a, you know, yeah. I mean, that's kind of your roots, where you came from. you you have entrepreneurial roots. You have settlers roots. You have, you know, you're kind of attached to the land in a way yeah. that probably feels real to you at this age.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that, that would definitely be one. Could I throw in one other? Sure, um, please. So this one's a little unique it's and it's not a great dining experience because there's actually not there's no seating. Okay. But I love this this place uh because of what it stands for. So in Salt Lake just a few blocks from our office is a a Thai restaurant that was started by refugees. Wow. And it's really amazing and uh it's called Lan Na Thai.
0: Okay. Lan Na Thai?
1: Yeah. You know there's this really great scene of uh refugee restaurants in Salt Lake City. Uh Salt Lake's been welcoming to many, uh, over 20,000 refugees over the last 20 years. Uh, a few years ago, I had my 40th birthday party. And for this party, we actually raised money for refugees and we we catered. We had three different refugee food entrepreneurs that that came and catered this kind of celebration. And it was amazing, it was so fun, but like, there's these amazing refugees that come with nothing and they start their entire lives over again. And there's uh, an organization, a nonprofit called the Spice Kitchen, that gives them kitchen space to kind of incubate their own little restaurant. And but this uh, this Thai restaurant is one of the great restaurants that's that's come out of uh, out of that refugee food scene. And it's really, really fantastic food.
0: Thank you for sharing that. That's really a cool story. And uh, now it will be on my radar next time I I come to Salt Lake City to check out because I, I love the story behind it. I love the mission. It's important to support up and coming restaurants but especially those from refugees. So yeah, I love that story. Absolutely. Well, I'd like to really talk about Cotopaxi. And just as I was doing some research about you, I really feel like the story begins in Latin America and South America where you grew up. Can you talk a little bit about A, where you grew up and the experience you had, what you saw and how it shaped kind of what you're doing today?
1: Yeah. So when I was four, my dad took a job that, that took us to Latin America. And so we moved First to the Dominican Republic. And it was a life changing experience. I mean, as a four year old, I have a, a little boy that actually today's his fifth birthday. So it's Aww. like, I'm looking at him thinking, like, this is the age, around this age when I left. And like, he's so little and he's, but he's like aware enough that he's like, yeah. everything.
0: But, like, I have a four year old too.
1: Oh, you do? Yeah. Yeah, so I have know, a four year old. Yeah. You know, this age, it's such a, spe- mm-hmm. it's like the best age. It is it's the
0: so best special. age. It's the funniest, the cutest things that come out of their yeah,
1: mouth. Exactly.
0: So you first moved to the Dominican Republic. What kind of job did your dad have?
1: My dad was a builder. And so oh. he actually, yeah, he was a contractor and he would build, he worked for the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints building churches. Wow. So uh, he had had his own construction company that was small. And uh, you know, in the early eighties, interest rates were crazy high. It was kind of struggling and yeah, you know, our family was kind of, kind of barely making it, you know, we, we had tiny bit of not a lot of land, but we had, we had a few goats and we had some chickens and like, and we had a little garden and like, that's really what kind of helped us get through some tough years. Mm. And then um, someone had mentioned to my dad, like, Hey, you know, the, the church needs someone, you know, is, is building there's, they're growing a lot in Latin America. They need someone that understands construction and building and that speaks Spanish. And my dad had been a missionary in Argentina when he was 19, 20, 21. And so uh, he's like, I speak Spanish and I love, I love building and I would love to have this experience in Latin America with my family. So we ended up moving to the Dominican Republic. And in a few months of living there, we had a, a child that was an orphan that was living in our home. And my family just, I started seeing things that I think most Americans just don't experience and just seeing poverty that was just devastating. Mm. And, you know, really bright, smart people, hardworking that had no chance of ever getting out of poverty. Mm. And so, um, you know, my dad, you know, he loves adventure. And we always had adventures planned in the outdoors, we'd go to little uninhabited islands and spearfish and and eat coconuts, you know, to survive and do all these really kind of crazy outdoor adventures. And my mom for every adventure we had planned, my mom had some kind of activity around giving and serving. And, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, but we we had so much compared to those around us, it felt like. And so we we spent a lot of time in orphanages and serving our community and and just finding ways to to immerse ourselves in, in these amazing places we lived.
0: From the Dominican Republic, you moved somewhere else in Latin America. Where was that?
1: Yeah, we moved to Puerto Rico. We lived there for five years and then we moved to South America. And then um, so I, I lived in Ecuador through into my teenage years. And then um, oh. moved back to Salt Lake City, went to high school here, and then kind of have been back and forth. You know, as an adult, I lived in, in Bolivia, Peru, and Brazil, and now I'm back in Utah. So kind of back and forth.
0: So you have this heart for South America because not only have you traveled there, but it really is a part of your home. You know, when you you spend formative years, right, it, it gets in your soul and in your DNA, I know that you know when you, if, when you look up Davis Smith on Instagram, it comes up adventurer, right? So we know you love the outdoors <laughs> and doing active things. But where did the idea for Codopaxi come from? And can you kind of talk us through how it got started and the inspiration?
1: Yeah. You know, it, it really came about, in, in some ways, it's interesting because it, it came about over a very abbreviated period of time, over 36 hours. Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my
0: gosh. <laughs> I love it. I love a story with the beginning, middle and end. Thirty six yeah. hours. What yeah. happened? Essentially,
1: I was living in Brazil at the time. And, you know, my entire life, I'd known I wanted to use my life in a way that could that could help others. And I didn't know exactly how to do it. And when I was in college, I'd you know, I'd had this idea that I was going to use my life to help others. And I wanted to help fight poverty. I, I did an internship uh, working for a nonprofit in Peru. And I just thought, you know, this would be what I'd want to do with my life. And when I came back from that internship, I met a professor at the university who was an adjunct professor. He'd been a successful entrepreneur and had started a nonprofit in the Philippines that was pulling people out of poverty. And it was super inspiring uh, to see how he was living his life and giving back and helping others. And I tried to convince him to let me work for him. And I wanted to expand his program from the Philippines to Latin America, where I'd grown up and where I'd been a young missionary myself. I'd, I'd lived in Bolivia when I was 19 to 21. And, you know, uh, he convinced me that I shouldn't work for him or for a nonprofit. He's like, Davis, you should be an entrepreneur. You're going to make a much mm. bigger impact that way.
0: Mm. What a selfless thing to say, because I'm sure, given your background, your heart for wanting to serve, which is apparent as I talk to you, he could have used you, right? He could have used a smart guy who wants to help and kind of taken you under his wing. But instead, he kind of lit a spark that allowed you to fly, right?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, this man is incredible. His name's Steve Gibson. He's in his 80s now, and I still get together with him once or twice a year. And he is just one of the greatest inspirations to me, just such an incredible man. And so, yeah, you know, you make a great point. You know, I I think it was a selfless act. And, you know, it set me on a path that I really hadn't anticipated. I I never thought I'd be an entrepreneur. I, I... it wasn't something that I, I really thought about much or ever really talked about. You hear a lot of entrepreneurs that growing up, they're selling cookies and building right. little things right. like, I didn't do any of that. you know.
0: Mark Cuban sold trash bags door to door. He was destined to be an entrepreneur, but you were destined, it sounds like, to help. But given your religious background, yeah. given your background with your families, what you saw, what you were immersed in, you were destined to help in some way. You just didn't know what format that would take.
1: Exactly right. And so, you know, as I look back now, and I, I am entrepreneurial, and I and I look back at my childhood, and I see elements of like entrepreneurial traits and things. But you know, I was, I had a different childhood, I, mm-hmm. I there was no any way to go door to door and sell something or like, <laughs> right. there, you know, the, in the places that I lived. And so you're right that, like embedded in me is this desire to help others. And mm-hmm. when I was living in Brazil, building my last business, that was what was on my mind constantly. I was driving every day through a favela, a shanty town mm-hmm. in, in Sao Paulo, and mm-hmm. I would see poverty and and this wealth inequality that was disturbing to me.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I made a New Year's resolution in 2013 that I wanted to change somebody's life. I was feeling discouraged that I'd spent 10 years not figuring out how to do good. You know, I was involved in some nonprofits and stuff, but like my day-to-day life was about business and It just wasn't fulfilling to me. And Mm -hmm. so I just thought, you know, I'm going to start with one person. I'm just going to find one person that I can go make an impact with. And in the beginning of of May uh, of 2013, I was I had this post-it note on my mirror in the bathroom that would remind me of this goal. And I was feeling so discouraged.
0: What did the post-it note say?
1: It said change somebody's life Mm. like that's it was just that that's what I was going to do that year. Mm. And it wasn't a very good goal. Like my wife kind of teases me because my, you know, my goals tend to not be like, there's the acronym SMART, like specific and measurable. Right, attainable. Right. And I it can't was very remember- general, change somebody's life, right? <laughs> exactly. So she's like, Davis, it's just like, you need to be more specific and like be, you know, something that's uh, more attainable. Like, but that was, you know, this was at the end of the day, like that, that was what was on my mind. And that's what I what wanted to do. And as I was laying in bed one night, I was feeling, again, very discouraged, feeling frustrated that I I hadn't found this purpose in my life that I really felt I needed to figure out. And as I was laying in bed, I just I started having these ideas come to my mind, some mm. different thoughts. And I rolled over and I, I kind of typed them into my phone, which I do often. You know, I, I kind of type things in my phone or write them down and then I come back to them in the, in the morning. Mm-hmm. But this one was different. The ideas just came so strongly. And I was just flooded with these ideas and I couldn't sleep. So I finally got out of bed. I sat on the couch with my computer and I I ended up just writing these ideas as they were coming to me. And I spent the entire night, the entire next day and the entire following night on this couch. And I, in those 36 hours, I took detailed notes and I have everything from the early ideas of of our launch event, which was this quest. We called it the questable, this Mm -hmm. 24 hour adventure race that we Mm -hmm. did. The name Cotopaxi, our slogan gear for good.
0: We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, thank you to our sponsors.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
0: To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American National agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. To dine for the podcast is brought to you by Riazul Tequila, referred to as one of the best sipping tequilas on the market. It comes from the highlands of Jalisco, 7,200 feet above sea level. Riazul's agave has a higher sugar content, lending itself to a sweeter taste profile. If you are looking for a true sipping tequila with extraordinary depth after being aged two years in a cognac barrel, you'll have to try Riazul Tequila. Cheers, everyone. Now back to our conversation. So when you're writing this over these 36 hours, the ideas are flowing. Is it what it is today, which is an apparel company?
1: Yes. It was an outdoor brand that would use its profits to fight poverty, that we would make outerwear and packs and bags. When I look at the notes, in fact, it was the 10-year anniversary of having this experience just a few days back. And I shared it with our team. And I went back through the notes and I read them, some of the things I wrote. I actually can't believe it myself. It's Mm -hmm. like, It is like so closely aligned with what we are doing today. Wow. So it was a really incredible experience. So in some ways, it was like this 36 hour period where it just like came to me. But as I look back now, it's like, you know what? Yes, it was this 36 hour of culmination of things, but really it was a lifetime. It was Mm -hmm. 30 years of experiences and of passion and of looking for a way to do good Mm -hmm. and educate and experiencing different things and learning how to build a business and learning how to have impact. And all those things just kind of combined, came together in that short period.
0: What was your first product?
1: So, our very first, when we launched the business, we launched with five backpacks. So that's mm-hmm. what we launched with. And we did this race, this 24-hour adventure race. We we knew that, you know, if we were going to go cater to a younger consumer, at the time it was millennials, now it would be Gen Z it wasn't just about selling them things. Like we needed to create an experience that allowed them to go live our brand. Mm. And so instead of just turning on a website and trying to sell a product, we actually bought llamas on mm-hmm. the online classifieds. We took them to college campuses around Utah and those llamas drew people to them. And uh, llamas
0: are cute. They're cuddly.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So everyone wanted to take selfies with the llamas and would ask why we were on campus. And we tell them about this new brand that was launching in this 24 hour adventure race where you could form a team and winning teams would get trips around the world and mm-hmm. gear and people got excited about it. So um, they showed up at this launch event and that's, that's kind of how things got kicked off.
0: So how did you come up with the first seed money? Like, was that your own personal investment? Was it venture capital? How did you get it off the ground if you're paying for people's trips around the world on a sort of I know it was it was really a a concept that was obviously integral to the brand, but also a way to kind of market it and to generate excitement.
1: Yeah. So the first, the first little bit of money, I mean, I didn't have much money because a lot of my, what I had was tied up in my other business that I would, that I had just left.
0: And what was the other business? We never touched on that.
1: Yeah. It was a business called baby.com.br. It was an e-commerce business in Brazil that sold baby products. And okay, it was Brazil startup of the year in 2012. It was, it grew very, very quickly. We went from Four employees to three hundred employees in like eighteen oh my months. Yeah. So if it
0: was doing so well, if that company was doing so well, why did you want to do something else?
1: Well, there is a longer story here. And, uh,
0: <laughs> can you can you encapsulate it into two yes, sentences? <laughs> I can. So
1: essentially, what I learned was like I can't take a business that did not have purpose and then and go tell my investors. By the way, you guys invested all this money in this business, but I want to start giving away money to mm. fight poverty. They'd be like, no, like, that's not how this works. Like, this is our business, too. Like, you need to give us a return. And then sure. if you want to go give away money, go use your own money. To- oh,
0: that's you, that's a really great lesson. So when you have an, an idea like you have with kotopaxi, it has to begin at the very beginning and everyone has to be on board and it has to be transparent. So the whole team and everyone knows what it's about that, you know, part of this business is about a philanthropic mission. Whereas, you know, you can't start a company and it's not part of the ethos. And then, I mean, you can, but it's it's gonna be a different, it's a different animal here.
1: Yes, hey, that's exactly right. Like you can do it. And in fact, I have an example, my very first business, I actually, I sold over a decade ago and I bought it back two years ago and converted it <laughs> to a benefit corporation. So we're doing Who good. says
0: they're not an entrepreneur?
1: <laughs> I know, <laughs> With all know. these businesses
0: <laughs> buying and selling, right?
1: Yeah, but you know, it was, it's a lot harder to take something that hasn't had this in its core to go build it into something that's doing good. Right. So that was one piece of it. The other piece of it was that I have had a co-founder in that business who was my cousin. We built our first business together. We went to business school at the same time between our first and second business. And then we moved down to Brazil to start the second business. And we were like brothers. I mean, we did everything together. We traveled together. We lived on the same street. I'm the one that introduced him to his wife. Like we were we were more than family. I mean, Mm. we did, we were inseparable. Mm. But during this time in Brazil, our relationship fell apart. And it's Mm -hmm. still a decade later, it's the it's one of the saddest things in my life. And, Mm. um, you know, that was a big driving force for it, too. I was feeling so sad and feeling Mm -hmm. so disappointed. And I was looking for something new. I I needed a change. And so
0: isn't it funny how sometimes our negative emotions, whether it's anger, or sadness or grief, really, in some ways are a gift. Because they can propel us towards what we're supposed to be doing or, or refine what we're supposed to be doing in a different way.
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right.
0: It's hard, isn't it? Yeah. We, ha- we sometimes have to thank and salute the people who are in our path. And sometimes we hurt them and we don't mean to, but they get us where we're supposed to be going. Yeah. And they are a gift.
1: Yeah. You know, change is hard. And um, it's oftentimes it's change what is what drives us to be better and um, opens up new doors of opportunity. And so, you know, for me, it was that was such a difficult period to lose that relationship and to not really understand why it was happening. And my dream, you know, I was living my dream. I was back in Latin America where I'd grown up. Our two daughters were going to school there and learning, Mm -hmm. having this great adventure and learning, you know, speaking Portuguese and Mm -hmm loving this new culture. And it was like, it was everything I hoped for. And I was building this really fun business. And I couldn't understand why it was falling apart, you know, in in some ways. And, and then at the same time, I look back now with hindsight, you know, more clarity. And I think I'm so grateful for that experience. And even though Mm -hmm. there's sadness, and there's disappointment in a loss of a really special relationship, I'm so grateful that I had that experience there, that my family did, and and it opened up and prepared me to go do something that's truly great. I mean, this building Codapaxi, this brand that's focused on transforming capitalism, on doing capitalism better. It's so fulfilling. And it's, I feel like this is my life calling almost mm-hmm. like this is what I was made to do. And I, I realized I needed all those experiences to be able to prepare me to go do what I'm doing now.
0: You had to be refined and refined and refined through entrepreneurial ventures to get where you are, right? Exactly. Um, yeah. What does the name Codapaxi mean?
1: Yeah. So I, you know, I grew up, I mentioned I grew up in Ecuador and I lived in the capital city, Quito. And outside of Quito, you're surrounded by volcanoes. There's huge mountains all around. And my dad, we, we loved the outdoors. So he would, we'd go climbing on these different volcanoes, these mountains on the weekends. And there was one of the most famous volcanoes, the most famous volcano in, in Ecuador outside of Quito is this volcano called Cotopaxi, named after so the company is named after this beautiful mountain and it's it's snow capped. Uh, it has a permanent glacier on the top of the volcano. Even though it's right on the equator, it's almost twenty thousand feet. So it's just this beautiful, iconic volcano. And uh, the school I went to in Ecuador was named Academia Cotopaxi, so named after this volcano. You know, when I had this idea. And I knew it was, you know, this outdoor brand that was focused on adventure and on serving others and helping fight poverty and doing capitalism different. I wanted to connect it to a place that really meant something to me. Mm -hmm. And I connected all these little aspects and elements. And for me, that that mountain was that, you know, my my dad and I spent a lot of time there camping and hiking. And uh, I was a Boy Scout there. So I did a lot of scouting uh, around Cotopaxi. So, yeah, that's that's why I chose the name.
0: And is your father still alive or has he passed away?
1: He is. He's still alive and we still uh Aww. we go on adventures every year together. Just uh two weeks ago we went on a canyoneering, repelling canyoneering trip. He's He's about 70. So it's like, I can't believe he's still doing this stuff. <laughs> that's, but like,
0: that's impressive. Yeah. I love the name. I will tell you how I came about Cotopaxi. I was in Crested Butte, Colorado, and I was visiting a friend and we were shopping right on the main drag there in Crested Butte, which is just another beautiful mountain town. And uh, my son is a type one diabetic. And so he has a pump. And he also has a sensor to monitor his blood sugar. And he has to carry a phone and also the electronic device that attaches to his pump. So it's a lot to carry for, a, for an eight-year-old, right? Yeah. And I'm always looking for ways to put it on him that, that is easier. And so I bought, ended up buying a little Cotopaxi. For lack of a better word, it's fanny sort of pack. like a fanny pack. Yes, yeah, so yeah. it's really yeah. colorful. And that's how I became aware of the brand. I saw it recently in, in Utah, and the colors are so bright and brilliant. And it was so funny. I was in a Cotopaxi store. I did not know your story, even though I interview founders for a living. That's what to dine for is all about, is people who have created yeah. things. And I said to the, one of the women in the store, I said, listen, do you have any children's clothing? Because the, these, all of these colors would look great on my three boys. And they said, you know what? We're coming out with a line really soon. And so it was like, I was like one step ahead of Cotopaxi. I was like, (laughs) oh great, this is amazing. And so, you know, after that conversation, I started to do a little digging. So I'm so glad that this brought me to you because it's really fascinating to hear kind of your journey to bring this to life. Will you explain to people how Cotopaxi does good, and it's actually kind of multi-pronged because, as you said, you are trying to reinterpret capitalism, but you yeah. also have a social mission and an environmental impact and ethos that's very central to your brand.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I first started thinking about you know our impact, I was very inspired by you know a number of other businesses that I saw that were doing good. I, I think of Tom's shoes. That's one of the first brands yes. that people think of when they think yes. of good and. The you know, the buy a pair, give a pair model. And what we kind of learned was that, you know, there were some negative, unintended consequences from their giving program where they actually were damaging small shoe stores in local markets that all of a sudden they couldn't sell shoes because everyone's getting free shoes. And mm. um, you know, mm. people that repair shoes, it's like, well, they couldn't repair because people are just getting new shoes all the time. And so, you know, they had to kind of rethink and they to their, you know, to their credit, they have rethought their entire giving program. But when I started codepaxi, that was still a thing like these. Uh, I saw a number of these, you know, buy one, give one kind of models. And it just didn't make a lot of sense for me. I I, I looked at, you know, what the real problems, the roots of poverty were. And this is from someone that, you know, I spent 20 years of my life in in de- in the developing world. It wasn't because people didn't have shoes or because they didn't have a backpack. Like if we sold the backpack and gave a backpack to some kid, they wouldn't solve any problems. They, they wouldn't be any less poor next year because of that. And mm-hmm. so I really wanted to think hard about how we could fight the very roots of poverty. And so we identified, in fact, in that 36 hours, I, I, I documented wow. uh, our, our three pillars, which are uh, education, healthcare, and livelihoods. And so that's where we focus our efforts, is in some of the poorest communities in the world. Uh, and we know that if we can tackle those three pillars, then we can help eradicate poverty. And it is a complex giving model. It's not as easy to explain as buy a pair, give a pair. But, you know, we donate a percentage of our revenues into a, a foundation, the Code Foundation. Then we give grants. We, we give money to nonprofits around the world focused on those pillars. And that's one of the ways we have impact. And so with that foundation work, we've assisted 3.8 million people living in poverty. Wow. As of the end of last year.
0: That's amazing. Congratulations.
1: Yeah, it's it's so so fulfilling and so inspiring to see um, what we can do even as a as a relatively small brand. But we also have impact in other ways. You know, we have an amazing refugee program where refugees in Salt Lake City, they get resettled. They can get their first job working with us. They join a job club. Mm-hmm. We partner with the IRC, the International Rescue Committee, which helps resettle mm-hmm. refugees. And our team helps them create their first resume, helps them do uh, jo- practice doing job interviews, and then they, they can get their first job working with us. Uh, we have a card writing program where they write thank you cards. So if you go to one of our retail stores or Buy something from our website, you get a handwritten thank you card written mm. by one of these refugees. Wow. And we do a lot of work with our supply chain wherever we manufacture everything from working with, you know, several fair trade factories to planting a community garden at one of the factories. We have computers and computer classes for the children of sewers in one of the factories. So there's not like one specific model we follow for every factory. We go to each factory and we learn where we can have an impact. And, you know, so everyone's a little bit unique and different. And then, of course, you mentioned the sustainability piece, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, 97% of all of our product today is made of one of the three R's, remnant, recycled, or responsibly made. And so Mm -hmm. a huge amount of our product is made of remnant. Like your son's fanny pack, Mm -hmm. it's very colorful. It's made Mm of leftover fabrics from other outdoor brands that use our same factories. And so we're able to use all these leftovers instead of creating new virgin plastics, polyesters. We actually are able to use stuff that's already been created that's going to go to waste and be able to use that to make product. And so that's kind of the the high level impact work we're doing.
0: I know. And we could get much more granular on all of those three pillars. I'm curious, how do you feel like you've changed since that 36 hour barrage of thoughts as you wrote everything down, Uh, which I mean, some could say people of faith would say that is like a, a strike of inspiration as you also alluded to it's also the culmination of all your experience in life leading to that moment how do you feel like now that you've seen all these stores and you've brought this brand to life and it's thriving what is the biggest takeaway on your life
1: yeah this is a really this is a really nice question i think there's a few things that i kind of take away as i look at the last 10 years number 1 for me it was it was a spiritual experience I don't know how else to explain. And I am a religious person, but it was a spiritual experience for me. And what I think I I learned there was that like sometimes in in our lives, like we don't know exactly the path we're supposed to go down. We might feel discouraged at moments or have things that just are not going right. But I believe in a higher power. And I believe that while I didn't understand my path, God did. Mm -hmm. And as I relied on him through prayer, through meditation, through these other things that I believe are so healthy, whether you're religious or not. Mm-hmm. it guided me down this better path. Mm-hmm. I think I've I've learned over the last 10 years to rely more on that um, than I did I think in the in in my past. And mm-hmm. so that's been really great. The other thing I'd say I learned is like it is so fulfilling to build your life around helping others.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: when you can learn to look beyond yourself every single day have a purpose that drives you that creates joy, it creates fulfillment and happiness and peace that you can't find in any other way. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how much money you make, how successful you are. You will not find those things if you're just focused inwardly. And mm-hmm. so the more outwardly focused we can be, the more joy and, and peace and, and and happiness we'll find in life.
0: Mm. That's great. That is really great. I, 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 You cannot go on a journey that you have been on and not be changed in some way. And I'm sure there's like a thousand other ways you've been changed. How do you stay creatively inspired? Because right now, you know, there's such power and magic to getting an idea off the ground and wow, seeing it thrilling to see it come to be. And now you're in the midst of scaling, which is hard slog in and of itself. I'm just wondering how you personally stay creatively inspired and outward looking.
1: Well, I will say you know there are definitely phases as an entrepreneur where there's there's times when I'm like all ideas and I'm just like <laughs> I have like a, an idea a minute you know in the early days of a startup like it, you're definitely in that zone where it's like you just have to be super creative and you're constantly solving problems through creativity and being you know innovative. I felt the same way in 2020. You know, we were 6 years into our business and the pandemic began and mm. it was a very very scary time. You know, we had to close our retail stores and for a time no one was even buying online. Like right. it, you know, it was uh, all of our retail partners were shutting their doors and it was like I don't even know if we'll survive. Like this right. was uh, it was crazy and
0: touch and go for sure.
1: Yes. And I for several weeks like all I did was come up with ideas innovative ideas of how we could survive and mm. I encourage our team to do the same thing find ways that we could all just innovate and solve problems together and I really love that but I have but I have to say it's not something that happens every day even as an entrepreneur it's, you know it's a lot of my day to day is not coming up with new ideas it's refining and improving systems that we have and scaling something that already works but I I do think it's important to stay like one of our three core values of business is innovation. And so I think that's important to stay innovative. One of the things that I, I love doing with my team to, to kind of keep this uh, embedded in who we are, even as we scale, is we hold these events called innovation tournaments. And I basically, I give the entire company, you know, 350 employees, I give them all a challenge. And I say, hey, this is a, a something that we're trying to solve for, or something we need, like the best thinking around, you know, how could we do this better? Or what, ideas do you all have around this one problem? And then a week later, we'll get together and we'll do this by Zoom now. We used to do it in person, but it actually works, I think, better on Zoom than it did in person. You can <laughs> send everyone to <into> breakout rooms <laughs> and everyone pitches their best ideas. Everyone comes up with 10 ideas. And these
0: are ideas for the for Cotopaxi to improve yes, the company? For, yes, wow, exactly. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. Kind of harnessing yeah. the brain power of everyone you got on staff.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And um, so, you know, we start with thousands of ideas and They have an hour together as a a small group of four or five or six people they put together. They choose their favorite idea. They put it together in one slide in 60 seconds. They pitch it to the whole company. Oh, wow. And over a couple hour period, we like we end up taking these thousands of ideas and we narrow them down to our top two or three ideas. We vote and we kind of it's a super fun process. And we end up with these really great ideas. And a few of the learnings there, it's like number one, some of the best ideas come from people you'd never expect. Sure. One of the winners of one of our our tournaments was this young woman, like 19 years old, working in our warehouse, picking and pulling boxes, and she won the best product idea.
0: Oh my gosh!
1: And so I love this. I love that it signals to the whole company. It's like no matter where you are, no matter what stage in your career, no matter what your responsibilities are you can have great ideas that we want to hear mm. and we want to innovate and so like talk to us and share those. And so it creates this culture of, inno- of innovation. And so that's one of the ways that we stay innovative within the company.
0: What advice would you give yourself, Davis, um, on those very first few weeks of Cotopaxi? Or maybe more specifically, what advice would you give uh, an entrepreneur just getting started knowing what you know now? What's your, what's your best advice?
1: Yeah, so I'd say one of the best piece of advice I could give a young entrepreneur would be this. A lot of times, entrepreneurs, they're willing to, to risk everything to go start something, and they're willing to give all their money, all their time, years of their life to some idea. But what I have found is like very few entrepreneurs are disciplined enough in the very beginning of the ideation process before they even jump into their idea. Like, How are you choosing the idea you're going to go dedicate your life to? You're going to spend all your money, all your time, years of your life to this idea. Make sure that it's your it's the very best possible Mm -hmm. idea. So run a process, you know, just like that innovation tournament. Spend six months brainstorming ideas. Come up with 50 ideas, 100 ideas, and then run a process where you're eliminating those ideas and filtering them down to identify hopefully the very best idea. And I think if you do that, you're going to have a much higher likelihood of success coming out of that.
0: Yeah, really test your idea. Make sure not only is it like viable idea, people want it, but also that you truly wholeheartedly believe in it.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, the chances of you having an absolutely incredible idea, if you only come up with three or five ideas, the chances are actually statistically very, very low. Yeah. You know, but if you come up with 50 ideas or 70 ideas, one of those ideas is going to be good. You just have to figure out which one it's going to be.
0: Okay, that is fantastic. Well, I can't thank you enough for spending this time with me hearing your story. And one last question. It, it was, it's a question I had at the beginning of our conversation. When you think back to that post-it note, right, change somebody's life, have you incorporated that post-it note and what was said in any of the marketing for Cotopaxi?
1: Well, and, and kind of, you know, so one of our slogans is do good. And we have these T-shirts that say do good. We made mm-hmm. during the pandemic. We sold these really colorful, fun masks that all said do good. And so that is kind of the tip of the hat for me about what this is all about.
0: I just I just think that there's something really powerful because we all have Post-it notes and we all could write an idea down and then. For the idea of something as generic but also as meaningful as change somebody's life could turn into a, a full-scale business that really is changing lives. I think there's something there. That's that's yeah. my innovation. I'm part of your innovation team now. No, I love it. I, I've
1: always loved. I, I'm talking about my mentor Steve Gibson. One of the things he always said was start small and dream big. Mm. So start small. Start with that little post-it note. Start with, but like, but have a huge dream about what you can accomplish.
0: I love it. Thank you, Davis. It's wonderful to meet you and great to talk to you and, and to hear your story.
1: Thank you, Kate. I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to To Dine For the Podcast. For more information on the show, The Guests and the Podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefor tv and Facebook at to Dine for with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For the Podcast, American National Lavazza and Terlato Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Goldner. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers. Stay hungry and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.